Well, if you've got Bibles in front of you that you wish to follow along with, Genesis 22 is the text we're looking at today, uh, this morning, and it's page 19. Um, How does a pastor who's not been here in nine years or eight years uh, choose a text to preach on the one Sunday that he's here? Anybody know where Genesis 22 came from? The idea, that is. I know where the where the Genesis 22 came from. but So we are not a denomination that generally uh, is bound to following a lectionary, but that's a place that I've found myself often going in my work as a chaplain, especially when visiting places that where, where I don't have, you know, multiple weeks to be able to work with and serve those people. So I looked at the lectionary and I thought, hmm, there's four texts, right? An Old Testament text, a, a psalm, a New Testament text, and usually an epistle. And when I saw Genesis 22, I thought, this, this, this is straight out of heaven. Probably one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Um, and I know of at least one of you that keeps notes on every text that a pastor has ever preached here. I've preached on Genesis 22 before. But the outline is different, I promise. In fact, I couldn't even find those sermon notes. I just know I preached this text because it's my favorite story. And if I didn't, I failed you even worse, right? So it's, uh, it's, it's a great story. And one that we'll read uh, as, as we come uh, to different parts of it along the way. It's a story that for a lot of people is very confounding. God asks Abraham to do something that's absolutely unthinkable. And even more surprising is Abraham seems to be okay with it. At least that's the impression that we get as we read through a story that probably most of us, if you've grown up in the church, learned about in Sunday school. If we don't spend some time reflecting on what the story is saying, though, I think we miss out on a lot of things. And not only do we miss out on a lot of things, but I think we run the risk of being introduced to things about God that simply aren't true. And so today we spent some time looking at this story and we're going to work through some of the questions that it raises. And we'll see something about what this story has to teach us uh, in our everyday living today. As I said, I think many of us know the story, right? God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah a long time before. The promise was that even in their old age, they would have a son. And we know that son was Isaac. And that through that son, the whole world would be blessed. Abraham was promised by God to be the father of a great nation through his son, through Isaac. And sure enough, Abraham reaches the ripe old age of about a hundred, right? And God follows through with this promise. And Abraham and Sarah rejoice at the birth of Isaac. Now here it is. Several years later, right? I'm, I'm going to guess Isaac probably in his teenage years, and we'll know why here in just a little bit. God calls Abraham's name again. As he's done many times leading up to this. But this time it's different, right? This time God calls on Abraham's name and he's not coming with a promise. He's coming with a request. No, not really a request, right? He's coming with instructions. He tells Abraham to do something that if you really spend your time and try to wrap your mind around it, is unimaginable. Unimaginable. 
Now, from the very first verse of this account, the Bible makes really clear that this is a test. But Abraham didn't know that. Right? The Bible hadn't fallen out of heaven with color maps in the back and books and chapter and verse markers yet, right? Abraham had no idea. He just knew that God told him to do something. After those things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We'll just pause there for one minute. It says nothing about how Abraham felt, did it? It says nothing here about what Abraham thought when hearing those words. Just instructions from God. And look what he does in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So we know the events of this story are playing out before the Bible's been written as we, as we know it. Keep in mind some of the things that we know happened later in the pages of Scripture, like, oh, I don't know, Moses getting the law from God on Mount Sinai. All of this is happening long before people even really knew that much about who this God was or what this God was all about. That fuller understanding of God's character and the nature of God, it just wasn't there yet. So people like Noah, people like Abraham, people like Joseph, and so many others that we could name, right? They followed God based on what they knew about God. But what they knew was very limited. Very limited. At the time of these events, human sacrifices were not an uncommon practice at all. In fact, the the pagan religions of the day, human sacrifice was a huge part of faithful religious people following their pagan gods. And so since Abraham was still learning a lot about who this God was and what the nature of God was all about, it's certainly conceivable that he would have thought to himself, maybe this is what God wants of us too. It would align with what they had seen throughout the culture at that time. He only knew what God was telling him to do. And he chose to obey. And he and Isaac... And two servants set out for the land of Moriah. And after about three days out in the distance, Abraham sees Mount Moriah. And we'll pick it up there at verse 5. Then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. The NIV says it a little bit differently. That last part, we will worship And then we will come back to you. We is significant, isn't it? 
It gives us some insight into what Abraham was thinking. Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham had Isaac, rather, carry the wood for sacrifice. I think that's probably one of the reasons that we know that Isaac was probably a teenager. Right? I mean, he carried all the wood up a mountain. Some of your teenagers are hard-pressed to do that, right? Mine are. We know that he wasn't a small boy anymore. So Abraham, what's he doing? He's carrying the knife and he's carrying the fire. The fire was probably a small receptacle that had an ember in it that would be used for, for igniting the flame for the sacrifice when the time came. And I just, Isaac notices something, right? He notices that something really important is missing. Something's not adding up. And so he asks his dad in verse 7, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they went, both of them, together. Was dad lying to his son? No, I don't think so. He was telling Isaac, or was he telling Isaac what he thought Isaac wanted to hear? I think it's more likely that he was telling Isaac what he himself, in the deepest part of his being, wanted to believe. Wouldn't you? God had told Abraham that through Isaac, specifically through Isaac, descendants, his descendants would be more than could be counted. So if there's no Isaac, how does that promise come to fulfillment? Abraham knew this. And Abraham believed this. So Abraham's talked about in other books of the Bible too, is he not? Hebrews chapter 11 is one of those chapters where we hear about these great people of faith, including Abraham. There the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 11, verse 17 and following, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he, was, he received Isaac back even from death, right? This is why Abraham could say to the servants, we will return. We'll be back. And so they arrived at the place that God had told them to go, and Abraham builds an altar and, and places the wood on it. And then he binds Isaac, right, with rope, and places him on the altar. And nothing is said of the conversation between Abraham and Isaac. The questions that no doubt this teenager had to be asking, right? But I believe that Abraham's answer would have been the same. God himself will provide the lamb. Much is said about the role of Abraham in this story. But think for just a moment of Isaac's response. He's younger. He's stronger. No doubt he's faster than his old man. He's big enough to carry wood up a mountain. 
I don't think he had to go along with this. But he went along anyway. Which tells us something really incredible about Isaac's faith too. And it tells us something really incredible about his character. And about his submissive heart. The story continues, right? Abraham raised the knife and prepared to do what he had to do if it came to that. And we pick it up at verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to, to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And at that moment, Abraham looks up and he sees out in the thicket a ram caught up in the bush. And so Abraham took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the, and the Bible says that he named that place Yahweh Yaira. Thank you, Becky, for being so thoughtful on the cover of the bulletin. Jehovah Jireh. The Lord himself will provide. And then the Bible adds this verse. Verse 14. So Abraham called the place, the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, we spent a lot of time talking through the story. And before the message is over, I'm going to say something about God's reasoning behind this request. But for now, I want us to consider just for a few moments, just a few things that I think this story teaches us. About living the promise-filled life that God has for us to live. Even though God will never ask any of us to do what he asked Abraham to do. I mean, after all, Abraham's story is a bit unique. I think we can agree on that. And we'll see why. Even though God would never ask you and I to do that today, it's also true at the same time that, that sometimes God calls us to do things that take us way outside of our comfort zone. He calls us sometimes to do things that we don't understand. And if that's you this morning, if you seem to be going through con a confusing situation in your life or a confusing time in your life, facing various kinds of tests, if you will, in your life, I think this story has some incredible insights for you. Some incredible things for us to hang on to. That can help us not only understand a bit more about maybe why we're going through some of the things we do, but also what we can do about it. And what you can come to expect in the process. So a couple of truths that I want to bring to your attention. The first one is this. And I don't have notes up there. Sorry. I know I used to do that for you. But I got to tell you that leading services in the middle of the desert in the Middle East, you don't get PowerPoint, right? And they don't really have it all over the ship either, so... But there's three points. They're quick. I'll be clear. The first one is this. There's going to be tests in your life. And every one of them means something. 
Every one of them means something. I'm certainly not the only one who remembers sitting in school. And I don't care what grade you were in, right? These thoughts, the earliest thoughts I probably have of it is middle school. They certainly continued through high school, college, seminary. I'm asking them today. I'm going through another master's program because the Navy wants me to. And I still say, There's, this, this is useless information for a chaplain, right? <laughs> There's no doubt you've had those experiences when you've been sitting in a classroom with a, with a professor or a teacher droning on and on and on. And you keep thinking to yourself, What's the value of this for life? What do I really need to know from this? And then eventually some brave soul, never me, but thankfully some other student in the classroom would raise his or her hand and say, but teacher, is this going to be on the... Come on, folks. Test. There you go. Is this going to be on the test? And everybody's ears perk up, right? Now we're taking notes. Now we're listening. You wanted to know, didn't you? I sure did. I wanted to know if I really needed to remember what I was being taught. I've lost count of all the things that I've endured in a classroom, and so have you, that have never come back in your life, right? But the thing about the Christian life is there's no such thing as useless information. There's no such thing as lessons without application. Whenever God teaches you something, he's going to give you the opportunity to put it into practice. He'll test you. So some may say, well, why? Right. Why does God feel the need to test me? Doesn't he already know what I'm going to do? I mean, we're reformed Christians for crying out loud, right? God knows all these things. He's sovereign. Before the creation of the earth, I knew you, says Paul in Ephesians chapter one. He knows all these things. God certainly knows what my response is going to be, does he not? And he does. He does. He knows everything about you. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. He knows the things you think you do in secret. He knows. And yet we see so very clearly in this story of Abraham and Isaac that sometimes God chooses to take us on a path of discovery. And he walks with us. It's almost like he's saying, I'm calling you to do this. And I'm just going to wait until you do. I'm patient. I'm going to give you the opportunity to succeed. Let's just see what happens. I mean, there's a sense in which God takes us. He walks with us on that path of discovery, doesn't he? And you know, that discovery is not for God alone. It's for you too. So that you'll know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the limits of your faith and your willingness to obey. He'll give you a chance, lots of chances, to back up your words with action. And so some of us may say in a big, grandiose manner, right? God, I'll do anything you ask me to do. God, I'll go anywhere you ask me to go. I'll walk a thousand miles. 
I'll wait a million years. Just say the word, God. And then we wake up in the morning. And it's Sunday morning. And it's pouring rain. Or it's 90 degrees at 8 minutes after 10. Maybe it's hotter out there now. You're all here. <laughs> but has there ever been that time when you've gotten up on Sunday and thought, eh, not today. Not today. I don't want to drive in that weather. And in a sense, that's a test, right? Small one. It helps us honestly confront our limits. And yet in another sense, that test is for others, isn't it? I mean, we know about Abraham's faith and we know about his obedience, not just because there's a few verses in the Bible that say Abraham was a man of great faith, but because there's stories. Lots of stories, including this one where Abraham demonstrates a willingness to take action to trust and obey a God that he hardly knew at this point. There's times in our life when we will face tests and we have the opportunity to demonstrate for others what faith looks like, don't we? What obedience looks like what trust looks like. That whenever God is teaching you something new, you can be sure that it's going to be on the test. It matters. The test matters. The test means something. Which leads me right into a second truth that comes right out of this text. There comes a time when obedient action is the only meaningful measure of one's faith. There comes a time when when obedient action is the only meaningful measure of a person's faith. So one of the things I love about this story is that we don't have any clue how Abraham was feeling. We can imagine how he was feeling. Words like confused, words like afraid, words like overwhelmed. I mean, these are the ones that come to mind for me. That makes sense. But when it all comes down to it, look, the feelings aren't mentioned because they really don't matter, do they? They don't really play a significant role in the story. It's what Abraham did that made the difference. James talks about this. The author of James in chapter 2 says this, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous in what he did? When he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, right? Doesn't Paul say something different about that? Yeah, he does. You've been coming to church for a minute. You know that we're saved by faith, not by works, right? It's all mercy. It's all grace. Our works in and of themselves do not save us. Our works are but a reflection of the change that God has done in our lives. There comes a time when our works confirm our faith. 
It's really nice when the Christian life goes well, right? When, it's, when everything's going swimmingly well. And when obeying God feels like the easiest thing in the whole world for you to do. But feelings come and go. And there comes a time maybe when you might not feel or not, might, might not be feeling it on a particular day. And yet you can take great comfort in this story that your feelings will never be the most meaningful measure of any aspect of the Christian life. It's what you do that counts. Your works don't save you. Let me be really clear about that. Don't be waiting for me after church so you can tell me I'm wrong on this. You heard me, right? Your works don't save you. But your actions reveal something about the extent of your faith. Jesus told a parable about two sons. Father comes along and asks him to go to work in the vineyard. You remember? And the one says he won't do it. But he ends up going and do it anyway. The other son says he will do it, but he never does. And then Jesus asked the question, which of these two did the will of his father? It's in Matthew 21, if you're interested. We can take great comfort in the fact that our faith isn't measured by our feelings. And we can also take this really as an essential guideline for us to remember. That it's not enough to feel a certain feeling. It's not enough to talk a certain talk. It's not enough to be filled with good intentions. There comes a time when the most meaningful measure of your faith is the actions that you choose to take. Which takes me to a third and final thing I want to draw to our attention about this story this morning. And it's simply this, about tests again. Each test leads us to a greater maturity in Christ, doesn't it? Verse 16. I know it's not in the range of verses that I put up there, but and I see y'all got an ESV, so I'm going off my notes. I'm going to find verse 16 in the ESV. Here it is. I'll start at verse 15, so it's not the middle of the sentence, right? And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The test is not without meaning, is it? It's not algebra class. Sorry, math teachers. When Abraham passed the test, he was ready to experience the fullness of God's promises. And folks, the same is for you and me. 
God's going to bring tests into your life and bring tests into my life so that we can pass them and so that we can keep growing up in faith. What kind of test does he give us? I could spend an hour talking through them, but let's just capture a few, right? I mean, the Bible is very clear, for starters, that tests are not temptation. Right? God doesn't try to bait you into doing something that he can later just punish you for. That's entrapment, and James 1 talks about that. That's not how God operates. The tests that do come our way are sometimes really subtle. They're sometimes really easily missed. There are opportunities for us to do the right thing. The opportunity to speak a word of encouragement to somebody that needs it. The opportunity to to help somebody who's been knocked down by life. The opportunity to, to show love or to be patient or to serve. The opportunity to give. God brings these opportunities into our life every day. You probably had some this morning already. You'll have some later today too. And it's almost like he says, here it is. Here it is. What are you going to do with it? With each act of obedience, we move a step closer to to, to living that fulfilled life, a promise that God has for us. With each step along the way, we grow a little stronger in what it means to love and follow Jesus. These tests that we face in life, and there's many, right? I know lots of you have gone through a lot, even in the short time that I've not been here. They're never without meaning. They all have a purpose. You might not see it yet. And I can't tell you what it is. But I know they're not without meaning. They give you a chance to measure your faith in some of the most meaningful of ways to take action, to take time to respond with obedience. So, as we wrap up, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to say something about why these events happened and why God would do such a thing to Abraham. One of the reasons why this story has forever resonated with people is, is, is not just how we connect to it today, but this, this is the kind of story that resonated with people in the Old Testament time of Abraham too. It resonated with the ancient culture of the day. It helped them understand in a very dramatic way that God is not the God like they've come to know from the pagan gods of the day. God is not a God of human sacrifice. Because he didn't require that of Abraham. He intervened. And in the most crucial of moments, right? Making it very clear that this is not something that God asks his people to do. Like what he asked Abraham. Instead, we see this story provides, in the, we see in this story how God provides a lamb for that sacrifice. Right? God says to Abraham already back in verse 2, right? Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Take your son, your only son whom you love.
Did you know? Listen, I've, I've, I've read this story. I, I mean, I know it from Sunday school, right? I preached on it multiple times before. But I somehow missed this little fact that I'm going to throw down at you now. Maybe some of you knew it. Good on you. Did you know that this is the first time love, the word love, shows up in the Old Testament? It is. I read it, I read it from another pastor who said that, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go check for myself. And I dusted off the Hebrew a little bit and did a little word search. Sure enough, it's the first time the word love shows up in the Old Testament. And what's it connected to? It's connected to sacrifice, isn't it? The story of Abraham and Isaac foreshadows another sacrifice, doesn't it? You know. You'll gather at the table next week and you'll celebrate that sacrifice. This is a foreshadowing of another kind of love sacrifice. Like Isaac, Jesus was the only son of his father. Like Isaac, Jesus would carry on his back the wood that would become an instrument of death. Like Isaac, Jesus would quietly submit to the will of his father. God didn't require Abraham to sacrifice his son. But wow, look how he used this story to foreshadow what would happen some 2,000 years later on another mountain called Calvary. Where an act of sacrificial love like none other would take place. We know the scriptures. We've all sinned, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Randy was here a little while ago encouraging you all to reflect this week as you prepare your hearts to come to the table. We come in our best clothes and our shiny, happy faces, but we know. We know the sin problem. We know the things that we struggle with. Every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can claim otherwise. We know who we are. We know who we really, really are. We know we need forgiveness. Every last one of us. And Jesus hung on a cross so that every sin that you've ever committed and every sin that you ever will is covered. It's placed on him taking the punishment that you and I deserve. But by the grace of God, we don't get. Paid in full. Washed clean. Made new. That's what his death accomplished. It's free, but it's not cheap, right? And he calls us to a life of obedience. But I want to make very clear 
that you don't work your way into God's presence. You couldn't be that good. None of you. Me either. Instead, it's a precious gift that we but can only receive. And once you've received that gift of salvation that he offers, that God offers through his son, while God will use your every step of obedience to lead you fuller, more deeply into fulfillment of the promises that he has for you. And we grow up, right? We grow up as followers of Jesus. Amen. Would you pray with me?